Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Eric Trexler and Rachel Lyon to explore the latest in global cybersecurity news, trending topics, and industry transformation initiatives impacting governments, enterprises, and our way of life. Now, let's get to the point. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of To The Point Podcast. I'm Rachel Lyon here with my host, uh, co-host, Eric Trexler. And hey, we're shaking it up a little bit, Eric, a little afternoon recording on a Friday. Have you already started your happy hour? Or Oh, that's right. I don't drink. You don't drink. <laughs> no, and I'm sitting down also, so we're really shaking it up today. <laughs> Talk about wild and crazy. I love the way you called me your host, like I work for you. That's absolutely the way it works. A little little behind the scenes here. That's exactly the way it works for all the listeners who've been with us for a while, if you didn't pick up on that. Who do we have, though? Oh, we have, we, I'm so excited. Okay. Um, so okay, today we okay. have Matthew Ferraro. He is counsel at the international law firm, William Cutler Pickering, Hale and Door. Um, you know, he's here in a personal capacity. I do want to preface that. And, um, he was as am I, Rachel, as am I, as that's true, as, as are representing you. Trexler, 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 <laughs> Trexler, and Trexler <laughs> and another Trexler somewhere out there. Oh, so I, I guess welcome first to the first welcome to the podcast, Matthew. We'll we'll jump into the awesomeness here in a second. <laughs> well, hello, Rachel. Hello, Eric. Wonderful to be with you. Uh, and I used to say, yeah, it's vintage Ferraro all the way through here. So you're going to get just just me and 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 a hundred percent Ferraro. So it's Ferraro all the way. It. A lot. Awesome. In your personal capacity, which is great. It actually, as I do, we we do a a good bit of research, even though our listeners sometimes question if we do. Um, But I mean, Yale, Cambridge, Stanford. That's a that's that's a pretty impressive uh, education history there. I mean, I I went to Oxford for a night, and and uh, there were some great pubs there. But but that's as close as I get to that. To that level, really impressive background here with that in your work history. So thank you for joining us. Yeah, oh, my my great pleasure. Really wonderful to be here. Now I want to talk about. Let's talk about this amazing CNN opinion piece that you wrote. Um, ransomware attacks are about to get worse, but there are ways to stop them. And you put forward so many great, you know, kind of um, ideas and perspectives here. Um, that I would love to dig into a little bit further. And, and you were telling us um, before we got on about, you know, this great book, Democratization of Violence, um, you know, and, and you cited that within your article. For our listeners, could you give them just a kind of a quick primer on that? Um, sure. So the, I should say the, the book is called The Future of Violence. Oh, uh, sorry. And it's, by, <laughs> it's by Benjamin Wittes and Gabriella yeah. Blum, but they, they introduced the idea of the democratization of violence, which I you know, ruthlessly just rip off for my, for my op-ed piece. Although I did, I did link to the book, uh, in the, in the op-ed piece. And basically the, the idea there is that technology has changed. And so in such a way that the world is getting smaller, that's common. Yes. Um, we've always think about that and that modern technology has placed the capacity for harm in the hands of individuals and not just states and individuals all over the globe. And so it means we're all vulnerable to each other. And the democratization of violence describes literal kinetic violence, like bioweapons that you cook up in your kitchen or drones that you weaponize in your garage, but also cyber attacks. And I, and I think that that was sort of my point was that ransomware is just sort of another step in that democratization cycle. 
Matthew, this piece, I, I read the first paragraph. I, I missed it when it came out, forgive me. But I read the paragraph as we were prepping and I stopped in my, I, I just stopped. And then I read it again and I probably read it four or five times thinking about it. And part of my prep process is I'll, I'll highlight pieces that are interesting to me or I want to talk about and then I'll make notes in the margins. Mm -hmm. um, but it really makes you think about the change in society, the implications. And then your mind starts rolling. Like, what about tech in general and how have things mm -hmm. evolved? You know, I, I went back to the advent of the of the car and I said, well, okay, so, you know, how has crime, you know, and I was thinking about the term of cyber tax, ransomware and the like, but how has crime changed over time? Back before the vehicle, crime was relatively isolated to either mm -hmm. travelers coming through your town or village or your area or mm -hmm. people who live there. And then the mm -hmm. automobile made it more po made it possible for people to extend their range, if you will, and then the airplane. But when you think about IT now, as you talk about in the in the in the in the op-ed piece, it's really a global reach that people have and a very low cost, high consequence uh, capability. Right, and uh, that's so exactly right, Eric. And distance, which you sort of allude to there with the car, means nothing in cyberspace. Not anymore. Right? So, right. so you can be anywhere. You can be in Estonia and you can do violence and scare quotes to me from, you know, 5,000 miles away and I to you. And I think that is part of the, the inside is that it's kind of this two-way street. And, and, and indeed, the, the, and I mentioned this to you before we started, but I wrote the piece in for CNN because they come to me and say, can you connect 9-11, the 20th anniversary of 9-11 to ransomware? And I said, well, I actually can, because what 9-11 showed was, with horrifying clarity, the outsized power of individuals to wreak havoc on an open society. Those Leveraging technology. Leveraging, well, and it was both very high tech in that case and very low tech, just sort of brute right. force that allowed them to hijack the planes. But the fact that we had the planes and that they carried so much fuel and all the rest of it, um, you know, was, was the sine qua non, was the thing that they really needed before anything else. Uh, and so now the idea is, look what cyber hacking has done as well. And I, the example that I point to in the piece in ransomware is your Colonial Pipeline, when that suffered its ransomware uh, attack, it shut down oil supplies across the East Coast, leading to gas shortages. And the thought uh, experiment that I, that I asked the reader in the piece was to consider what it would have taken in a pre-cyber era for that same outcome, like what kind of right. you know, You're kinetic, kinetic attack would you have needed? How many people would you have needed? What kind of, you know, trucks? C4 explosives yeah, and, and exactly guns. coordination. And it, it's not, it's a lot more than a keystroke. Exactly. Yeah. And the fact that it could be done uh, from so far away, assuming, I think it was a uh, Russian back hackers, I said, double check my notes. Um, but um, from so far away without firing a shot, which I suppose is in some ways a better, but <laughs> question mark. Um, well, I mean, and, I think it depends on the consequences that mm -hmm. you've got to consider also better, worse. Right. And there, there was a report recently of a hospital that lost a child because yeah. of a, a ransomware attack. So that is yes. quite violent. That was heartbreaking. I mean, yes. Yeah. But the, the other piece, not just the attack, but, you know, one of the things you got me thinking about was the escape. Right? Yes. If, if you had to drive trucks and do physical work to destroy a pipeline or inca incapacitate a pipeline, 
you've got to be there to do that. Mm-hmm. Right. You're not in a foreign country protected by a government, potentially long distance away out of harm. You know, you're right there. And then you've got to make your escape. In the case of Colonial Pipeline and most of these ransomware attacks, you're already in safety, mm-hmm. but you're mm-hmm. not there. And, and I think about that from the defender perspective. It almost makes the physical defense of attacks not easier, different. Right. But the, the risk profile is so low. And, and you talk well, yeah. about that. Indeed. Yeah. I mean, like, I, I think that's, that's quite right. I mean, the incentives are a bit different when we think about, uh, I'm a lawyer, and so you think about things like jurisdiction, right? Right. And it's, and it's much easier to prosecute someone who's within the jurisdiction of the United States than someone who is overseas. Uh, I mean, we talk about like Estonian uh, ransomware hackers. Think of also like Nigerian romance fraudsters, people who convince lonely yes. hearts to fall in love with them and uh, and send them money and gift cards and whatnot. And there's basically, they were outside the writ of the courts, hard to get anybody extradited uh, and all the rest of it. So it, it does take, uh, it's, it's harder to sort of fathom solutions because in some ways, it exists in an ungoverned space, which is, of course, cyberspace, not the the sort of the streets and the valleys uh, and the mountains that we that we think that we, of what we think of yeah. territory. Right. And and that's assuming you can even identify them, find them, and incarcerate them. Right. 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 And then exactly. the whole legal challenges you were discussing, but with ransomware, it's not like Joe, who just blew up a pipeline, was captured locally, and you have him. You right. may not even know who did right. it because it's behind keystrokes right. in so, a I different mean, country, protected exactly. by a nation state, potentially. It's, it's, it's a crazy world. Right. It's, 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 more and more, uh, uh, it's a more and more difficult world with a lot more threats and defenses that we're all called upon to man. Yeah. yeah, the same technology that allows us to record this podcast in three locations across the United States provides the same technology to the criminal, to the adversary, yes. to do harm to the United States or, or really any country. Mm-hmm. There, were, there was a line in there that I saw that I also mm-hmm. just fixated on. Ransomware extortions have become a self-sustaining ecosystem of criminality. And basically what you're saying is there's a lot of treasure. Mm-hmm. Yes. And there isn't a lot of risk. And Essentially, there's this self-sustaining ecosystem or business that's being created. You, you, you use some statistics. I think in this, it might have been a different article. Yeah, it's here. One of the reports, a 57-fold increase from 2015 to 2021 right. in ransomware cost to the global economy. Yeah, that was a report that I cited. No, I think that's really uh, interesting. It's important to sort of highlight because when it comes to ransomware, the the benefits of paying it almost always makes sense to pay. Uh, it depends a little bit, obviously, on what right. what the ransom is. But you know, it's usually if the if the criminals are kind of smart enough, they'll pitch it at a low enough cost point, price point. So it just makes more sense to pay with the likelihood, you know, relatively high likelihood to get your data back. Not always for sure. Right. Um, and so the benefits are individualized. You get the benefit. The costs, the moral hazard of incentivizing future attacks is socialized. Society bears those costs. You get the benefit. So that's – and that is the problem because then, as, as I said, it's, it is self-sustaining because then this money goes to the bad guys who can then continue their attacks. 
um, and they're, they're unlikely to attack you again. So again, sort of you as the victim. But there are, are plenty of targets. But there are yes. plenty of targets, plenty. and increasingly so. I mean, there are yeah. businesses, police stations, hospitals, as we mentioned, um, governments of all kinds. I mean, any you know, the internet is ubiquitous, right? Online connectivity is ubiquitous, so everything is now connected to the internet. Individuals. So, yeah, I mean, I think that it is one of those and it's not the kind of thing that has a silver bullet solution. It is a kind of a many different element solution. Yeah, it's a typical good cybersecurity problem where there That's is right. no silver bullet and the adversary right. always has the advantage and they can try as much as they want to and they only have to get right once. And it's 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 crazy. Yeah, mm-hmm. So I, I was thinking about the article and, and we don't have to spend the whole show on the article, but you know, I was like, OK, so what do we do about it? How do we? Right especially with ransomware, you're talking state and local governments, businesses, you're not talking the United yes. States government mm-hmm. and major Fortune 500 companies which have enough trouble protecting their infrastructure right. and their their data. You're talking mom and pop businesses, school systems. I mean, they just don't, it's not a focus for them. So I don't think better technology, better defense is the answer because honestly, I don't think it's a, a, a tenable uh, situation there. Like you're just not going to buy technology and the adversary just finds a way through it. Even if you do. Right. How, so, so what I wrote down was how do you raise the cost to the adversary? To me, that's the, right. how do you raise the mm-hmm. cost to the adversary is probably the only answer I could come up with or the only good question that could drive to a satisfied, a satisfactory answer. Well, I think that that's exactly right. And I talk about transaction costs, which is sort of a fancy way of saying friction. How do you increase yeah. friction? But I do yep. think just before we move off of it, I do think defense is part of it for sure. Because I think that the more that you can do, ransomware begins with a malware attack, right? With the placing of mal- malware on a system. So the more you can do to make sure that your staff is using two-factor authentication, that they're not, that they're aware of these threats, that they're not cl- clicking on, you know, links, that they've got, you've got good hygiene when it comes to what's coming through your firewall. Like, all of those things are important. Absolutely the- necessary. I agree mm-hmm. with you. Yeah. I mean, I, I have yet to see a business or government organization where they are deemed impenetrable. Oh, right. Yeah. Right. But I think because there are so many targets, one thing is that so the more that you raise the cost, the less likely, the harder it is for them going for them right. to do it. So they'll move on to the next target, which I think benefits the the potential victim. But okay, so one would be obviously bolstering defenses. The second, and I do talk about this in the piece, is that I really think that the government should act where businesses can't right. and take you know, basically all the actions in their power to disrupt the ransomware activities of foreign states, of criminal gangs. So what does that actually mean? In my mind, it means employing diplomatic pressure, time progress on taking ransomware groups offline to sanctions relief. Like we'll give you relief on right. sanctions if you take these ransomware groups offline. If the ransomware groups you know, reside in those countries, usually in Eastern Europe. Indicting bad actors, I think it's important to indict them even if we can't necessarily prosecute them. Sometimes they want to visit Disneyland, right? They want to get on a plane and they want to come <laughs> go to Orlando. And then right. they, they get picked up at the airport, right? I mean, exactly. it happens. Uh, or they have to transit through ski pole, you know, in the Netherlands and they get picked up by the Dutch. Like these things can happen. Um, and extraditing and prosecuting them when we can get our hands on them. And then potentially, this is really sort of in the government's bailiwick, obviously, taking any kind of offensive action against ransomware groups. Obviously, these are things that the private sector cannot do. So this is where government 
must act because to continue our discussion from before, this really is like a governance kind of problem because it exists in this territory that is not really governed. So that's sort of like step one or step one and several more. So that's the first several steps. Which I think goes into raising that cost as I, as I thought more about it. Like you just, Mm -hmm. and if you're, if you're a local school district, you're on the school board, you're not raising that cost other than the defense angle. Yes, exactly. Okay. We should invest in a higher percentage of our budget into basic cybersecurity, maybe training, things like multi-factor and and, and the like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. But they're not going to go after a, a persistent, um, you know, ransomware group operating out of, out of Kazakhstan. Right. I mean, oh, absolutely not. I, mean, school board just, I mean, they probably can't even spell Kazakhstan, nothing against the uh, school board, but you know, <laughs> I mean, they're uh, not going right, after no, Kazakhstan. That's, that's really part of it. No, I, I mean, so that's a big part of it. And then I, I mentioned as well in the piece, um, the importance of interrupting this payment cycle, this thing right. that creates mm. yes. a self-sustaining cycle of criminality. And that's a little bit harder, but we saw that now with OFAC, uh, the Office of Foreign Asset Control and Treasury Department issued sanctions on the first ever um, uh, virtual currency exchange. It was Russian. It was, I think it was in the Czech Republic. Um, I guess I should check. I don't want to. I don't want to impugn anyone's integrity, but uh, <laughs> yeah, we do it all the time. Don't worry about it. <laughs> so, so asterisk on that. But, um, but like that's that's one way. I mean, it, I actually think I, w- I was asked if I thought doing that would harm the adoption of crypto and more broadly. And part of me actually thinks the opposite is true. I think if there can be more to sort of clean up crypto, so it isn't exactly. the sort of malefactors bizarre of all the every terrible thing you could think of being paid for in cryptocurrency, it makes it easier for companies and clients to deal with, you know, due diligence, know your customer issues. And then if they're more confident using crypto, I think it actually could lead to greater yes. adoption. Agreed. So that's an area where I think more regulation could help. And, and it should be said that in Colonial and others, because they went to the authorities early, they were able to trace some of the crypto to wallets and get the money back. Right. So I think that that's something that's important. I think it's important that the government should work with companies to do more of that to, again, make it less profitable. Uh, someone once told me that they thought that um, you know going after ransomware groups was like playing whack-a-mole. Uh, to which my response is, have you ever played whack-a-mole when you're the mole, right? It's like, it's like no fun when you're the mole. So, so like what you need to I do, haven't, but I imagine it hurts when that, right. that little padded mallet yes. smacks the you in the, the head. mallet comes down. So I think the idea is that it, even if it's whack-a-mole, if it's, um, if it's a particularly aggressive whack-a-mole, you actually can get some benefits because what your ransomware gr- group, to extend our metaphor, wants to keep getting bopped on the head. Yeah. So, I'm, I'm, Go ahead, Rachel. I'm still thinking about getting whacked in the head with a. Uh, no, I love this. I love mallet. that. I love that example. It's it's so visual. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's an interesting perspective, though. Too, you know, kind of the the government getting more involved, um, particularly. You know, I think Colonial Pipeline was very much kind of this catalyst moment, right? I think that we saw the current administration starts say, you know, kind of putting out the executive orders, and I I think I heard um, there's like what 18 cybersecurity kind of bills, right, that, mm-hmm. that are kind of soon to, to come before the Senate, um, you know, and, and so there's a lot of opportunity, I think, with the, the regulations to that point. Um, but what's the trickle-down effect, though, too, right, is, as businesses then have to start adapting to these new regulations and, and, and following kind of, you know, new compliance measures or, mm-hmm. or whatever mm-hmm. that is. And, um, you know, it's, it seems like it could get 
tricky. And, you know, sometimes to your point, it's easier just to pay the ransomware, pretend like it didn't happen, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, sometimes it is, but I think that at least some of the bills out there, like the Ransomware Disclosure Act, which I believe moved out of um, Senate committee, would require certain uh, entities to report. Yeah, there's a uh, disclosure component. Yeah. And I think that that's the kind of thing that the company should be doing already. They should be talking to the FBI because, first of all, on the very practical point, it's going to make it easier for them to trace the crypto. Right. Second, you know, there, there is legal considerations. And so I will say that uh, any company should talk to their lawyers and I'm not giving you legal advice. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's rare that paying ransom is illegal. I mean, it's, it's like a lot of things would have to line up for that to happen. Right. Um, Again, speak to your lawyers, but that's sort of like the general the general thing. But you still want to talk to the government about it because right. they're going to have a certain expertise. Increasingly, the FBI is assigning different um, field offices to different ransomware groups. So, like the you know this Russian ransomware group is being uh, uh, honchoed by the Charlotte FBI office or the Houston or the whatever, and so they're going to want to connect you with their pros. Um, and then the other, and so like that's, there's a certain benefit there. But then the other thing that I think the government could be doing, I touch on this in the piece, is that the more the government does to establish a modus operandi, the less it leaves to the courts and civil litigants to figure out. Because right now, and we'll go back to Colonial, Colonial is a subject to at least two class actions that I know of, perhaps more. Yeah, I and, saw that. Right. And, and what will end up happening is that judges will end up having to determine issues of liability and negligence and you know, rules and standards. And it's just much easier in my mind for the, for the experts in the federal government, um, often working with industry and sort of a comment period or whatever process to establish those baseline guides and to make right. that clear than to leave it to judges to do in the context right. of litigation. And then often what will happen is there'll be lawsuits, but then they can look to what the federal guidelines are and that can help resolve some of the lawsuits. When I want to go back to that sharing component, when, when mm -hmm. I talk to my government clients, they are usually talking about, you know, government industry partnerships and sharing malware, right? Mm -hmm. We want signatures. We, we, we mm -hmm. want to know, you know, IOCs, indicators of compromise, indicators of behavior. Like we want all of this stuff and, and they just want it, it seems for, I don't know why. Like they collect it, they have no good way to use it or disseminate it. The ISACs are about the best I've seen. Mm -hmm. um, and, and there's some good value there. But then you look at something like the sunburst attack of last December, reported last December, where, you know, a, a lot of companies, Microsoft and SolarWinds and, and a few others were caught up in that. And you, you recognize that what FireEye did when they detected the problem and they went public immediately. Yes. Mm -hmm. Saved mm -hmm. a lot of catastrophic loss. No mm -hmm. way to calculate it. It's not tangible. Like you can't just measure how much, but by FireEye getting that out there and not just saying, we have a problem. And if we talk about this, we could have a liability here for our shareholders. Right. But, but they went right to the government and they, and they went to solar winds. Mm -hmm. And to me, that was one of the, I don't know if heroic's the right word, but, but one of the most, uh, I, I don't. I don't know of the exact words, but but selfless. Uh, you know, they, they were thinking about the global community as right. opposed to, 
okay, what, what's the liability? What's the risk here for us if we disclose this, our shareholders, our stock price, you, you name it. Mm-hmm. But it, I, I do believe it prevented significant downstream consequences or the continuation of loss. And it allowed mm-hmm. customers, the government and everybody else, to much more quickly respond and, and deal with the issues at hand. Yeah, I think I don't you're know. right. So I, I'm a big one on disclosure. Definitely. Hey, you got a I problem? Think, <laughs> Talk about it. Like, fix it. Right. And, and you know, oftentimes, I mean, you, if you're in communications with law enforcement, that's going to be protected. I mean, you, you, there is a lot exactly. of protections to it. Um, and yeah, and I think that it can also just redound to your benefit to that of the industry and of society. And, and, and my, you know, my experience, which is not massive, but I, I've been involved in some, you know, related to some major public cases that have been out there. The government is very tight-lipped about these. They, they, you know, Sony has a problem and is working with DHS. DHS can't tell anyone, doesn't want to tell anyone. Just making that example up. Don't take that as a, you know, but, <laughs> but, but right, right. So, so they don't want to publicize it. And they're, they're very siloed in the way they work, which you could see that same attack hitting 52 other companies, except you really don't see it. Well, I do think that's an area where it, it is imperative for the government to be disclosing as well. And they, I mean, they have to be a good partner in this right. because it really is only in the working together. I mean, sometimes for the obvious reason that the, the targets are going to be private, but also the, the, the pipes that the data travels on is going to all be owned by private companies. All the right. switches are going to be. So like, it, it's just, you have to be a, a, a good steward. And I will say that from what I've seen in the past few years, there have been, a, I think, a much more of a recognition of that through the CISA and the maturation that that's gone through. And now there's a there's a stopransomware.gov website, I guess you should plug that, that, that um, CISA stood up, which is supposed to bring all of the uh, different stakeholders together. So if anyone right. listening to this podcast, if your company is a, a victim of, of ransomware, you can go to that website. And there's some good content there. You don't have yes. the Staples easy button where if you're under a ransomware attack, you hit the button, it just stops. But right. there's some right. there's some good content. And I would say, Matthew, I don't know if you agree, go there before you have an issue. Yes. Look at yes. it. Educate yourself. Learn about this space. Learn about what could be a problem for you. It's probably better before than after. Oh, absolutely. And I should say, and this is not just plugging my law firm, but you, know, you should talk to your lawyer's uh, and others who will help you update your cybersecurity plans because this, yes. this absolutely has to be part of your planning. Uh, I mean, it, I will say it's been a very busy summer for us because we have a lot of right. you know, clients who are interested in this given everything that's been in the news. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's you, you want to pre- pre- you know, prepare before. I was just reading, uh, Rich, I know you're in Houston. I was just reading James Baker's biography, mm-hmm. the former Secretary of State in Houstonian, and he had a, he had a phrase, um, the five Ps, proper preparation prevents poor performance. I we think had that six in the military, but I won't go into that. But yeah, it's a great phrase. We were infantry and we still use it, so it applies. What was I, the, uh, I, I don't know if we lost our clean rating with the Facebook episode or not. Oh, I, I not throw it out there. Oh, oh, I think I know what it means. It refers to a certain... Uh, Bodily function. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, um, so you would yeah. use it very frequently with like really dumb privates who did something stupid and failed to prepare or think about something. Anyway, back to the show. Uh, anyway, back to the show. So proper, perfor- uh, proper preparation preventing poor performance applies to ransomware as well. Absolutely. Well, anything in cybersecurity. Yeah. Or like life, plan I suppose. But yeah. And, and life. Like I said, it worked with young privates too. That's right. 
That's hilarious. That's well, I guess that's part of the the issue though, right, Matthew? I mean, it's I think a lot of people kind of are what are the chances? You know, I'm a mom and pop and you know, they're not really following all this stuff. And you know, our, our CEO has a, a great story. He um he knows someone who runs, I think, a plastic surgery practice in Los Angeles and works with pretty notable people. And, you know, he, he kind of came around like, oh, wait a minute, you know, I what if I got hacked and, you know, all these, they love to do the before and after pictures, which yikes, uh, if those yeah. got out, how do you protect yourself? But I, I, I think that's an outlier. I don't know that a lot of, you know, smaller private businesses are, are thinking about this. And then, you know, so h- how do we raise that awareness or how do we get people to take action instead of waiting for that catalyst moment, like colonial pipeline and Hey, well maybe now we should probably invest now that we just shelled out a million dollars in ransomware, cryptocurrency, right. uh, payment. <laughs> it's like, anything, I mean, it's, it's basically like anything else, you know, buying insurance, right? You have to put money up front to prevent right. a, a, a deeper loss. And I think part of it is awareness raising, consciousness raising, like through this podcast. I think also part of it is recognizing that for that mom and pop uh, or that doctor's office, it's, it's not, it's not that much of an investment to start raising right. those defenses, right? So it, it's, it's two factor. It's making, it's, you know, uh, making sure that you're, Crown jewels, as it were, or the most sensitive um, uh, information like this before and afters might be segmented on your drive. Or, or um, on a different network, not connected to network. the internet yeah, or something. If you can do I mean, it as a standalone, that would be yeah. fabulous with an air gap. You know, anything like that would be beneficial. But so in actual dollars and cents, it's not that much. It is just sort of the attention and and spending a little bit of money on it now. Right. But how many plastic surgeons, and I'm looking at my neighbor who's a vascular surgeon across the street yeah. with a couple of offices in the DC area. Think about it. He doesn't. Like yeah. how many, how many people think about that as a, all the business problems they have. Right. Especially in times of COVID, right? They're working COVID protocols. What can right. we do? Well, like that's the priority right now, yeah. not ransomware that they've not been hit by. They're now. Right. But they all have insurance. I mean, they're all going to have right. like they, they do things now already. Like they have liability insurance, and flood insurance, and employee insurance, and so this is you know, and, and they all have an IT system, right? They all pay somebody to come and give them a Correct. basic IT system. So I mean, some sometimes it's making sure that startups. Uh, I know a fellow who wrote a book called Startup Secure, and it was you know building cybersecurity right from the ground up of any business and any startup. So I think that's great idea. Part of it. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just like, it has to be, um, I do think it has to be, uh, I guess, penetrated in terms of the, the public mind sufficiently right. that you recognize that it's the kind of thing that you're going to have to address. Right. And if you go to a convention of plastic surgeons and, and three people are talking about getting hammered by ransomware, all of a sudden, I think it's probably top of mind. Right. 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 So there will be some loss before in, in many cases or the insurance companies may come back and ask questions regarding the insurance costs and ratings. Right. So there's That's true. I mean, there is some talk. Uh, I actually have, I haven't seen this yet, but there has been some talk in the press of insurance companies becoming more skittish of paying out ransoms. Yes. Yes. Um, because, you know, more more sophisticated companies, not necessarily the mom and pops, but the more sophisticated ones will have cybersecurity insurance. It will cover ransomware attacks. Yeah. But, you know, those are all based on tables. And if too many people start, start asking for payments, then it starts messing with the models. So um, right. it's like yeah, a I beachfront house, you know, basically in the water. You know that thing's going to be expensive on the insurance side. 
But didn't we hear about, and it may have been in Europe, like what, didn't one of the ransomware gangs actually target a ransomware insurance company to see who all the clients were? Of course. So that they could get paid, you know, they knew the guaranteed payment, you know, so. Wow. I I had not heard that story. That's, that that is, that is wise. Yeah, I'm trying Uh, to figure out who that was. It was in Europe, Rachel. It was this year. Yes. Yeah, beginning of the year-ish, I think. Yeah, I'd have to research that. We don't have time yeah, on the show, but, but- It was fascinating. But brilliant, so right? Crafty. Criminals are smart. Yes, yes. I mean- If only they put themselves towards good, you know? Sometimes it's more lucrative to uh, to not do good, especially if the risk is almost non-existent, right? Look, looking at, you know, what what is that risk factor? You know, I understand yeah. why they do it. I'm not condoning it, but I, I do understand why- they're in that business and, and right. why they're making money and, and, and they're, they're mm-hmm. absolutely smart. There was a, a raid um, in a foreign country whose name is escaping me and they, they seized what, like a Maserati. It was a ransomware gang and they seized, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash and a lot of really fancy materials because yeah, you can, you, you hit enough people with $40,000 ransom demands and you live in a relatively low rent country. You're going to, you're going to have a lot of stuff. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. But what so Rachel, did you gain the world, but lose your soul. Like that's really the issue. <laughs> that's oh, that's I what love, I gotta I tell I love them. the way you're thinking, Matthew. Yeah. So, so Rachel has in her notes. She definitely wants to talk deep fakes. Oh, great. <laughs> oh, I, 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 uh, I, can, I love this topic. I love this. Yes. talk to us, Rachel. What do you want to know? <laughs> well, I, I, I mean, I, they're only getting more sophisticated. You know, and and I, and I think that's really really fascinating. I was reading some article that there was a deep fake that had you know kind of um, passed a, a photo company. You know, like this is what they do. They know mm-hmm. photography, mm-hmm. and and there was one that made it past their desk that they didn't even pick up on. And that's that's truly scary. And I and I think people right now they think of it kind of jokey. You know, like on the internet, ha ha, right. you know, I'm, I'm putting, you know, my face on, you know, Obama's body or something like that, you know, oh, it looks great. But I, I think they're kind of missing. There's, this can get really dark really fast and we've mm-hmm. only scratched the surface here. And I, I'd be interested in your perspective on that. Right. No, I, uh, thank you for raising this. So I, I, I do write and speak to the clients on, uh, on, <laughs> on synthetic media, on deep fakes and, I think that it's a it is a major change, almost a revolution in media. And I do like the phrase revolution because revolutions don't necessarily have solutions. And it's not right. clear to me that deep fakes are going to be quote unquote solved. It's just we're just going to deal with them. And and yeah. by that I mean we're going to live in a world in which there's much more very believable false media and that that media is going to be able to be created by many more people in a kind of democratization of technology and, yes. if you will, violence, quote unquote. Um, and there, and it's, there's many different kinds. So like the real nightmare scenario would be um, time, say, for uh, a period of great tension between North Korea and the United States. Maybe there is a war game going on in the Korean Peninsula and there's a deep fake that is created of President Biden announcing that because of a recently discovered Korean perfidy, he is going to be launching a first strike against Pyongyang. And say as well that this is timed uh, with a cyber hack in which uh, a malefactor, bad actor, gets access to the White House Twitter handle 
And so they start circulating this video from the White House account. And it goes viral. So some level of of, of credentials there. Yeah, I'm sort of imagining a compound attack, you know, so in which maybe they've gained access to the the Twitter account, but they've laid laid in wait for months because they want to time this for the moment of maximum peril. And so then this video goes viral and the Kim regime sees it and they're not sure it's true. Maybe they only think they think it might even most likely be fake, but there's like a 10 percent chance that it's actually true and that their death is imminent. And the entire reason for the North Korean regime is the survival of the Kim family. So what are they going to do? I think that they would probably, in their mind, counterattack uh, by firing artillery across the DMZ into Seoul, where 30 million people live. And millions would die. Um, and then, of course, there would be an attack, which the U.S. would have to respond to. And it would all be started because of a fake video. And whoever created it, right. whatever bad actor, China, Iran, or a private actor, would uh, would be laughing, uh, so to speak, as all this went down. So that would be like the, 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 the terrible, right. worst case national security scenario. But there are many others. One that's common right now, I mean, that's kind of an inchoate, a future threat, is deep fake non-consensual pornography. And this yes. is the placing of a non-consenting person's face on a nude body in such a way that it looks like a realistic pornographic image. Uh, it targets women almost uniformly. Uh, lots of celebrities online mm-hmm. and sort of the back alleys of the internet, but also increasingly regular people because of- I the, haven't heard of this. Is it for yeah. extortion purposes or- like, It's humiliation. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I think it's just, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's just sort of awful behavior towards people. I think it's like sometimes ex-lovers or people yes. like that. Um, so like, I hate Janet, uh, uh, what's her name? Uh, give me an actress, Pamela Anderson. I, I don't like Pamela Anderson. Boom, right. I'm going to put well, her right. face, I, I, actually a bad example. I don't like Jennifer <laughs> Aniston. I put her face on somebody else's body and I circulate it. Mm-hmm. Right. I think that might, I mean, I think that for celebrities, it might be a certain kind of sexual gratification. Like they want to see these celebrities okay. nude. Okay. Um, I think that for when it's average people, and there have been some studies, uh, a friend of mine named Henry Ashder in the UK put out a study and he, he found something like 600,000 average women had been uh, victimized by this. And um, I think some of that it's 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 more animus or uh, gratification, but it, it is a serious issue. I think it's a little underreported because obviously who would ever want to admit to this? There's a woman in Australia yeah. who's become an out who was a victim of this and then became an outspoken advocate for the rights of women and girls in these situations. But it's like there's like that's a problem. And then in the sort of business context, which obviously I think a lot about because of my professional role, there's market manipulation. So, yes. and this, this happens a lot already with just sort of fake news and fake social media posts where they announce a merger on social media and uh, the stocks, you know, rise, but it was just all a, a feint to drive the price up so that they could drive a benefit or yeah. perhaps uh, they announce some regulatory action that drives the stock down and they've taken a short position. Mm-hmm. So imagine that, but not just with text announcing these things, but video of the two CEOs shaking hands, but the video is fake or, uh, or of a news conference where a quote unquote U S attorney is announcing an investigation into company X, Y, Z, but it's fake. So like there would be that. And then also to, to our point, to our discussion here, just social engineering. Right. So then, especially now we're all at home. Uh, and then you get a, an email from Stan in it and he says, Oh, um, 
your credentials are expired. Let's have a Zoom call and I'll reset them. And he comes on and even looks like Stan from IT because Stan from IT's photos are all over the internet. They can create right. a, a deep fake of that. And um, and then you hand over your credentials thinking, of course, you've, you've even double checked right. because your company policy is you have to have a video chat. You can't do it by phone because right. phone is not reliable enough. And you uh, saw and, Stan, so it's got to exactly. be good. And you saw yeah. him. And so now he's got access to your network and he can wow. place it with malware. He can steal IP and on and on. I mean, there's some of the employment law issues, right? You, one can imagine a, an undercover video showing an employee an employer doing something mm -hmm. uh, aghast. I don't know. Maybe they're uh, sexually harassing someone and it turns out that it's fake or there's at least an open question as to whether or not it's right. fake. Um, um, and, but they use that perhaps for uh, extortion purposes. So anytime, basically anytime you would rely on media for anything, right. which is all the time, yes. uh, th th there is a danger here. And I think it's, it's really interesting. I think it's growing. Right now th there is a spectrum, like the best deepfakes are very, very convincing. Mm -hmm. And I would point uh, listeners to the work of Chris Ume, who's a Belgian-born Chris Ume? Ume, U-M-E. Accent Egu. Um, and okay. And he is, uh, he was born in Belgium, but I think he lives now in Thailand. And he created for TikTok uh, these really believable deepfake videos of Tom Cruise. And he actually hired a Tom Cruise impersonator yeah. um, named, I think, Miles Fisher is his name. And so all he had to replace for on the impersonator to make it look like Tom Cruise was like from his lip line to his hairline. So not that much geography, not that much landscape. But he did it well enough that it is really quite believable and you can go online. And I will say, uh, Chris is very talented, but he's also smart, which is to say he didn't have Tom Cruise saying anything that was defamatory or anything right, like right, that. He's right. just sort of having fun. And, and uh, that's one. And two, the account that he uses is called Deep Tom Cruise. So it's like right there in the name, right. a disclosure that it's phony. Oh, and there I will are people say that, who will believe it. Right. People who believe it. Um, and so there's like, that's the very best end. And, and Chris is a professional and he has a lot of skill and he has the right kind of computer hardware. Uh, on the, the, the worst end, you can use face swapping apps like Rachel mentioned right. and things like that. So those haven't, you know, there's still a delta between the two. I think just technology being what it is, you're going to see that delta narrow and yes. narrow. Um, yes. And so pretty soon we'll have the ability to just make deepfakes on our phone. In the interim, the, the interim step is what I call deepfakes as a service, DFAS, yeah. you, of course, software as a service. And so DFAS is where you go to a service provider and like Chris Ume has a company now called Metaphysic AI in which you say, I want to create a deepfake of myself because I want to speak in foreign languages because I have such a large employee base. You know, half of my employees are, are in uh, India. And I want to be able to speak to them in their language uh, about our, you know, latest strategic plan. So create a deepfake of me talking to them. You know, that would be like that would be an example. Interesting. Okay. We go do that. Um, yeah, there are. There's a fascinating new company out there that it's a startup, but it promises to revolutionize uh, dubbing into foreign languages. So like when you have look at a movie, and now either they would hire uh, actors in foreign languages to record the dialogue that would then be basically dubbed over the, the English dialogue. They now want to change it so that they move the lips of the actual actors and so that it matches more right. seamlessly the, the words of the uh, 
the foreign uh, voices. So like that would be a kind of an interesting change. And then I will say our artistic uses are going to be, I think, a very right. prominent and popular example in which you're going to be able to uh, de-age older actors so that they can play younger selves. Uh, you can put deceased actors into movies. I will say that this is an actually interesting legal area because New York recently passed the first law in the country that creates a statutory right uh, to one's digital likeness post-mortem wow. if one's an actor. So you can actually register with the state your likeness if you're an actor. And then once once one dies, uh, one's family will be able to collect royalties and um, for 40 years. So anyway, it's, it's really interesting. Wow. You guys have gone on for okay. a while, wow. but... Yeah. So, so question. I mean, you, you said at the beginning of, of this section here, mm -hmm. it, it's a revolution and may not have an answer. Mm -hmm. the, the question I would have is if we have to live with it, mm -hmm. deep fakes, right? So you can't, you can't believe what you're seeing in all cases. In fact, even if it is legit, you should be questioning whether it's legitimate or not. How do we do that? You know, as we're wrapping up, like, like, Okay, yeah. we're going to live with it. Got it, Matthew. Thanks. Now what? What do I yeah. tell mom? Yeah. I, hey, I think, that you got to you got to question everything. I, I right. get that far, but yes. what do you do? Well, well, and let me just say on that that is um, uh, a very popular issue, which is called the liar's dividend, which is a, a, a phrase coined by uh, Bobby Chesney and Daniel Citron, two law professors, and it says that the deepfakes are very powerful because it gives the liar this dividend, this, this value, because they can now deny the reality of any true media that they just, that is inconvenient, you know, and the classic example is that former president Trump is now saying, I think I read this in Vanity Fair, that the Access Hollywood tape in which he was on tape, uh, you know, bragging about grabbing women is fake. So that would be like an example of the liar's dividend because okay. it's, a, yeah. it's a benefit that, that accrues to him. And then uh, people I, question, was it real? Right. Was it not real? Yeah. Or, and, or and, legitimate and, data, the inverse. Exactly. And and uh, I've uh, uh, coined my own term. We'll see if this goes viral. I call it the zealot's dividend. And it's not. that's when it's not even the subject of the media who just dismisses any true life video evidence, media evidence as being fake. And again, it, it, the supporters of former President Trump are... Uh, a good example here because when President Trump came on television on January 7th to um, forswear and criticize the rioters and insurrectionists who broke into the Capitol, some of his supporters said that has to be a defect because he would never turn against us. You know, so they're right, not right. even the subjects of the media, but they, they, they latch onto this idea that media can be fake. So what do I tell mom? I mean, I think the first thing is to be skeptical but not cynical, which is mm -hmm. to say you know, put on your thinking hat, look clearly for, indi look for indicia of falsity, you know, and there are many, the face doesn't look right, the yeah. eyes don't blink and all of that without buying into the cynicism that there's no such thing as truth, truth or falsehood, right? Like that it's right. just one, one thing and not the other. Um, so like, I think that's, I think that's a big part of it. Um, you know, this, the second is that I think that there are things that we can start adopting from a technical standpoint. I mean, we're not quite there yet. But there's basically two ways to handle deepfakes technologically. One is to detect deepfakes after the fact, and there is some progress being made on detection software by Microsoft and others. And the second is to use what's called digital provenance, which is basically mm -hmm. when you take a photograph or a video, you tag it with metadata that is yes. – uh, the metadata goes up to the to – the, Almost uh, like a digital watermark. 
Right. Exactly. And the digital yeah. artwork is stored in blockchain, so it can't be tampered with. And that's getting more popular now, actually, because of the pandemic uh, in a very basic application for insurance companies because they can't send insurance adjusters. So they've been sending um, claimants software by Trupic, which is a company that I, I know and like. And they download it and they take a photograph. The, the, the photograph is marked by a watermark and a bunch of other stuff. And then they, and then the uh, insurance adjusters know that it hasn't been tampered with when they you know review whether or not right. to have what to insure and change on the car. So like there's that. And I guess I'll just draw an analogy to close this out. Uh, I have an old passport in my family uh, and I think it's of my grandfather. And if you open it, it's just his photograph like stapled into the passport, right? right. It's just like his little photograph stapled to the passport. Right. It's not, there's no watermarks. It's not behind plastic. Um, now, if, it, but it, that was considered, you know, legitimate uh, and uh, yeah. trusted um, back uh, in passports time. back in the day. Right. But as forgery technologies improved, as photography became much more common, you had to come up with different kinds of standards. Yes. And so now, and so now, my passport, of course, is like laminated and it's got holograms. And so, if I tried to show up and board a plane with my grandfather's style passport, I w- it would be it would give rise to questions of whether or not it was legitimate. And I think that something similar might very well happen right. with media now. So that when I open a video on my computer and I don't see uh, a watermark or a bug to suggest that it's been made with, say, provenance technology or that it's passed some sort of scan, then I'll be a little bit more skeptical. Uh, I think that's happened in the past, and it might well happen in the future. Well, we need to uh, we need to move that up faster on yes. the uh, priority list, and we'll see if people yes. uh, pay attention. By the way, my passport took forever to get done during COVID. Here, I just <laughs> complained against the uh, State Department in three months. Just crazy. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that memory back. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you know it was real. It wasn't fake. It is real, and That's I did right. screw up the photo according to them, but I don't think that happened because I sent the same basic photo back. But anyway. Rachel, I think it's time. Well, I got to tell you, my dog ate my passport, and it was three days before mm-hmm. I was supposed to go on an international trip. Trip. Luckily, this was before COVID, so I was able to to do the you know the hail mary thing and, and squeak in. But I was I, I brought it to the post office. I was like, "Is there any way to salvage it?" <laughs> said, yeah, no dice, no dice. <laughs> okay, dog- so there we have one for the po- for the State Department, one against. <laughs> So okay, they've got a tough job. They had to be in person. I, I, I can't even that. imagine. Yeah, can't no even kidding. Imagine. Well, Matthews, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this was this so much week. fun. Thank you for having me. Wasn't what it? What a great I, way to end the week. What an exactly. enlightening discussion. Thank you. All my favorite topics. Everything. All right. Well, um, so that wraps it up for this week. And as always, you know, hit that subscribe button because we'd love to show up in your mailbox every single Tuesday with a fresh episode. And until next time, stay safe. Thanks for joining us on the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast, brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit www.forcepoint.com slash govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts.